0: So I've been asked to fulfil the brief of the Engage Talks, um, which apparently have the aim of helping an academic community of staff and students explore tools and strategies for building online presence, social networking, and digital engagement. Um, This is sort of really the first time I've talked about something that's not my own research, so it's sort of more autobiographical than any talk that I've that I'm usually giving. So it sort of feels quite weird, but I actually am a huge fan of both um, Twitter and blogging, and I just am going to hope to share with you today some of the uses that I've put it to. And I should say straight off, I'm not an expert. I've come to this because somebody suggested I give it a go, and I did, and it's taken quite a long time to get into using it in the way that I'm now using it. It's been mainly trial and error. Um, I certainly haven't been on any training courses for either Twitter or blogging, Um, although sometimes I wish I had been. Um, But, This is really just a sort of almost a biographical trawl through how I got to where I am using it now. Specifically, I think it's a really good way to integrate research and teaching. Um, I'm quite passionate about both of them. I'm not one of these people who only wants to go away and do my research, although I'm very pleased that I have a sabbatical coming up next year so that I can do that. But I'm very interested in doing my research and then bringing that into my teaching and sort of really. Integrating those so that students, even undergraduate students, feel very much in touch with the uh, research which is going on uh, in in academia. Okay, um, one of the things I, I did earlier is I sent a tweet um, about doing this, and you can see my people of various people have already retweeted it. It's been favorited and retweeted by a couple of people. Um, And that that tweet was just to say that I'm going to be here giving this talk. Um, How many of you actually use Twitter at all? Okay, so that's most of you. So most of you are basically familiar with Twitter. Um, How many of you blog? That was quite a few of you. Okay, good. Well, that gives me some idea of the sorts of things that I might not need to say. In the course of this, yes, I do use Twitter, but I use it through TweetDeck, so actually I never go onto Twitter itself, Ah. and that age means nothing to me. So actually, perhaps you could could talk about it. Well, yes, that's a good point. Actually, there's a number of ways of getting at Twitter. Um, You can use various applications such as TweetDeck, um, and I tend to use um, the actual Twitter website uh, just in my web browser, like this. And here you simply have a stream which says this is your homepage, this is the tweets that are coming in from people that I'm following. This is an interesting mix of stuff. Um, Connect really gives you uh, people who have oh yes somebody's live tweeting my talk. This is McCarthy. Okay, that's good, so you can see these things coming up. Uh, I'm going to mention live tweeting talks uh, later. Um, uh, Discover is just a way of finding out what's trending, I don't really use that very much uh, unless I'm searching for someone specifically. And me sort of take you to my profile, um, which I'll go to um, in a minute. I'm going to keep returning to this so so you'll see a lot more of this uh, as I go through. Um, So I thought I'd just give you my sort of story. I actually joined Twitter during the last general election. Uh, because when the outcome was sort of unclear and there was a lot of stuff going on and the media people waiting outside Downing Street trying to work out what was happening, I found the easiest way to get up to date information was to follow the Twitter feed of Laura Koonsberg and other people who were actually there on the ground saying so and so's coming out looking happy or so and so's coming out looking sad. Um, and you know, it just was for me like a sort of instant newspaper. And it's still possible to use it that way. Um, But I soon realised that it's a good way of publicising things that I myself was putting up online. Um, I already had a web page just with my publication list and some stuff about me. Um, Mainly I kept my own web page because I have three employers here, I have two colleges and a faculty and they each wanted web pages and that seemed very duplicative to me and I didn't want to have to update things three times so I thought I'd have my own web page and let them all just link to it, which is what I did. Um, Around the same sort of time, uh, around 2010, I realised that nobody really reads my publications, which is a sort of sad story. Um, I do work on a very obscure area of medieval musicology. There's not many people working in my field, and certainly not many people that I come into contact with on a daily basis, although some of those people are actually here in the room. Um, But I thought, how could I make my stuff more available? And I realised that one of the things that puts people off reading academic work is it's paywalled. It's available via JSTOR. It's available via subscription services. And various presses that I was publishing with had started sending me PDFs that I could put up on my web, personal web space. Um, but I just didn't have anywhere to put it, obviously, on the, um, on the website that I was using. And I thought, actually, what I could do is I could blog about these publications and then put in that blog a link to uh, the, the full copy. Um, some of the publications, the pr- the, publication, the publishers were less, um, less generous, I should say, and wouldn't allow me to put up anything um, online from the published version. And so actually when I started the blog, I thought there was an opportunity there to sort of almost give a resume of some of my publications. And this really came about because um, it, back in tw- 2009... Um, I had a, a number of things which appeared in print with 2009 dates on that I'd written ten years before, right at the beginning of my, my publishing career. And they just seemed so old and I was sort of, uh, nobody was expecting them, no one was going to read them. I just thought these things were a bit of a waste, uh, unless they can be made accessible. Publishers wouldn't let me put them up, so I decided to blog about them. And that's what's here on the, sort of the first blog post which is on there, so there's something called Grafting the Rose. Um, which is a paper I gave at a conference in this very delightful venue to which I will be returning this summer Um, and I gave a sort of abstract and bibliography partly so that if anyone's searching for things which are on the bibliography they might turn up this page so sort of trying to link in my research and publications to the web generally and to to searches that people might make I put in a number of links back through to things so anything on my bibliography that I could uh, turn into a link to go to that book in Google Books or other open access sources where possible, um, I added in there. And you can see there's actually quite a lot of links there to my publications um, that are cited in the bibliography to this article, which isn't online, but there is a description as to what it's about. Um, Actually, if we go back to that. So that was the first first one I did. Um, The next one, and I'm not going to go through all of these, don't worry, it was a similar case where it was something that just came out uh, a very long time after I'd given the original paper, and I just thought, they won't let me put it up online, so I've got an abstract as to what it's about. It's going to turn up in searches, um, and it's going to hopefully lead to, you know, the, the complete <coughs> number of people interested in this topic, which may well be a very small number in global terms, uh, probably under 10, I would have thought. Um, but nevertheless, they will actually be able to find it and read it, whereas it's it's published in an obscure volume, um, an edited volume, very hard to find the contents of edited volumes because publishers don't often list them uh, very uh, successfully um, on, on their own websites. Um, and then finally, um, here there's a, uh, a link to an article where they did actually give me permission to put it up. So nevertheless I thought I'd include an abstract because it gives you a chance to sort of write in a more chatty way about what something's about. There are people who don't want to read the academic article but they do want to vaguely know what you've talked about. So I sort of wrote a more chatty uh, piece of prose describing what it's about. The sort of thing I might say to students when I'm describing what an article has got in it um, as opposed to sort of the the more formal prose of the article itself. And here there is indeed a link to the full text of the article uh, with the permissions uh, information there. And I still decided to include the bibliography on there with its own outgoing links. Basically, the more links that you can have going in and out of any site that you've got, the more likely it is that people will find it. Um, Or at least that's what I've been told by the experts. So that's what I do. Um, And it's quite fun uh, to do that. And it often means that people end up linking out from your blog and you can see this in the stats. Um, I'm using WordPress. They have quite a good way of showing the stats on the blog. And the stats on the blog will tell you what links people clicked on from your blog, as well as telling you what search terms they used to get to your blog. And that's quite interesting information. Mm. Um, sometimes it's quite alarming information. Uh, you get sort of quite weird search terms that lead people to your blog, and you're not quite sure how that works. Um, OK. so. That was it. I'd started blogging, um, and I did um, you know, these sort of putting up articles of uh, things that were being published. Luckily, I was having quite a lot of stuff that was a backlog of stuff of mine that was just appearing at the time, so I was able to blog fairly sort of frequently. Um, then I decided I would blog about DIAM, which is a project that I'm involved um, in, uh, which is about um, digital images of medieval music manuscripts and associated metadata with them. And I just put the blog post up to sort of really try and publicise DIAM's work a little bit more. I blogged about my experience of publishing a scholarly book, which I didn't think... Mm. I I wasn't sure whether it would be interesting to people or not. um, But certainly in the humanities, publishing a book takes ages and ages. (laughs) And it's really frustrating. You sort of send your manuscript off and then it goes out to readers and it takes six months or a year and then you have to revise it, fitting the revisions in around your work because your sabbatical has ended a long time before you get any of the reader's reports back. And then there's the frustrations of the press wanting you to make certain changes and you, it just goes round and round. So I wrote a long post about um, a book of mine that was just about to come out at that point, but about the whole sort of two and a half year process of bringing that book to press. And I suppose this is something which, you know, particularly for people who haven't yet published a book, uh, it wasn't information that they knew. Or maybe people who are publishing their first book can be reassured by reading. And actually, I got quite a lot of nice feedback from people um, about that. So you can blog about things that are related to what you do and sort of offer um, just points of interest and maybe points of guidance to to things that are associated with uh, the academic career. Uh, I put up some English versions of something I'd had published in German, that was easy enough to do um, and quite good to do given that most people don't read German. Um, Then I did a a blog post that was sort of something quite different which was to blog about um, this one here I think, about my perfect research library. I'm sure this annoyed some people in the Bodleian, Um, but basically (laughs) I had a horrible afternoon trying to do some research in the Bodleian, it was very, very noisy and um, basically the chair was very uncomfortable and I thought I would blog about this and I know this sounds horribly self-indulgent but actually the thing about blogging is you can just not take yourself too seriously and you can write a slightly sort of self-deprecating moaning kind of blog and some people will find it funny, other people will hate it but that's okay because they tend to just click away and uh, the people who found it funny liked it. Uh, But it actually resulted in one of my first comments on my blog. And you can see actually here that somebody tweeted it because it's got Twitter1. Somebody liked it, um, although I think that may have been a chair manufacturer. I should say, actually my dad's a chair manufacturer there's a link to his blog to his website on, on this place it was a bit naughty but yes I got an uh, email there from Lisa Colton who I do actually know she's a, a medievalist working at the University of Huddersfield uh, talking about um, this whether or not you can borrow from whether you should be allowed to borrow from research libraries like the Bodleian so that's sort of quite nice and this was really the beginning of what then started to happen all the time um, uh, which was that you get sort of lots of um, comments on your blog and you can comment on other people's blogs you realize that WordPress will send you a a, a notification saying someone's commented on your blog and you can approve the comment or not so you have lots of editorial control over how the comments appear Um, and um, then it will often give you a link to that person's own blog if they have one particularly if they have one with WordPress so this is something I can advert for WordPress. I, I use WordPress because somebody else I knew was using it and said it was easy to use. And it is pretty easy to use and I do, do quite like it. Um, but then what happens is when you've commented on someone else's blog, people will click on your name and it will link through to your blog and it sort of increases the traffic on your own site. So it's a sort of way of just being more linked into other people's um, uh, research questions. Um, I then decided that I would actually migrate my old website which had, you know, the boring information, list of publications, what I do, uh, what my job is, that kind of thing. I would migrate that all onto the blog site because the blog site allows you to set up not just blog posts but it allows you to set up pages as well, uh, web pages. Um, So that's what I did and actually now the front of the blog looks like this. Um, I can't remember how I got it to do four columns like that. I think I may have had help from a friend um, so it now has four sort of bits to it so I 'm a professional profile and publications that came from my old website. The blog um, itself is sort of now in a sort of separate little subsection. and studying, I thought was quite a good thing to put in there. At the point that I migrated it, I decided I would have some studying pages. And actually, this page here on undergraduate applications, um, that 's a picture of me. Um, and it 's just instructions to undergraduates on how to apply to read music at Oxford, and specifically at my two colleges, because obviously you don't apply to the faculty, you apply to colleges. It tells people what to expect in the interview, it tells them there will be no trick questions. Yes, we will not ask you any trick questions. It tells you how we decide, and you can see that quite a lot of people have tweeted that. Nobody likes it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But quite a lot of people have tweeted it, eight, quite a lot. given that music is a fairly small subject. But one of the things I can tell you is that from the stats, this is one of the highest visited pages on my site, quite interestingly. And the day that I had the most number of single page views, which was a couple of hundred views in a day, uh, was a day that I both did a blog post on something research related and tweeted about the effect of this page. This was at the beginning of October, the UCAS deadline, of course, 15th of October, and I tweeted saying, and you know, if you want to apply to do music at Oxford you might want to check this out um, and you can see here on the sort of on these blog pages which are on the pages on the blog that are not the blog itself you've got links to the blog archive and you can have little widgets in here for the twitter feed so I've got my sort of twitter feed so those are the last three tweets that I sent and you can see here. Um, and this morning I was tweeting about the Turin Codex 15th Century Music manuscript, which has just, just gone up online. Lots of people had a uh, retweet of, of that, lots of the various medieval people who were following me. Okay. Um, then I thought I would actually just see about just publishing things online. Um, I've got all my publications for the REF, so I was feeling blasé. And I thought, you know, I could put something up on my blog that is, looks like a publication. I, I'll put it in latex so it looks... That's looks quite nice. Um, and I would just firstly blog about it. This was something where um, DIAM, the project that I referred to earlier, had just got some new fragments of a, uh, a music manuscript that had a concordance for a, a motet that we already knew about from another source. And basically, I thought I'd do a quick uh, article, drawing attention to that concordance, not the sort of article that was, would be big enough to go in a journal, And if it were to go to a journal, it would probably take about two years to appear. I sort of wrote this in a week and stuck it online. And uh, stuck it online with a Creative Commons um, marking here. These forms, you can get a... uh, There's a website that will generate you the HTML to include those on your blog. And that just means anyone can use this according to uh, certain conditions that you set up when you uh, get the HTML. And this then gives you... A link to now. Well, I hope this is going to work. Yeah, that's the HTML version of the same thing, which is a concordance link. Um, and there's actually, let me go back to it here. Yeah. So there's a PDF version, which looks much nicer. There it is. So, and this is the sort of you know, it's a ten-page article it's never been published in a journal it's never going to be published in a journal what's in it has actually been superseded because it's been responded to in fact by one of my graduate students who I won't embarrass by naming because he's here in the room um, uh, who has written a a, a master's thesis uh, taking some of the suggestions that I had for further inquiry and actually running with those and uh, you don't really need to read my article anymore Um, okay so that's my basic story and what ended up happening as a result of this is that I became this thing which people had, you know, the term sort of crops up um, on Twitter quite a lot, the, the digital scholar, um, which is, if, as I say, if you've got a blog and you comment on other people's blogs, you get sort of more traffic, you start to know people online in this shared community that you have never met, perhaps never will meet, um, although I have had some interesting sort of tweet-ups with people. Um, I met up with somebody who uh, works at the University of Stirling on he's um, actually I think in the theology department but you know had shared research interests and I just happened to be in Edinburgh and I didn't know that he lived in Edinburgh and I was tweeting, saying oh it looks a bit grey and rainy in Edinburgh today and he said oh you're in Edinburgh let's meet for coffee and we had a very nice coffee and a very nice chat about various academic interests that we we shared so this is what happens um, being cited and having pingbacks, um, the blog-only publication which I just showed um, had uh, generated some discussion by people who are interested in this idea of what they have called guerrilla publishing, which is where academics decide to sort of get round paywalls and not publish with uh, with actual presses, but actually just publish themselves directly online. Um, and a number of people sort of talked about my crowdsourcing of uh, comments. Because I've now done this with a few articles. There's a few articles that have either never got, I've never got round to publishing them or they've been rejected from various journals for being too speculative, which I think is quite an interesting thing. Um, the speculative one I, I put, just put up online, immediately had a huge amount of traffic um, on the blog, and immediately generated comments responding to a number of the questions that I had at the end of it, which was, you know, how can I shore up the identification of this particular flag? Or you know, does anyone know who held the rights to the <coughs> benefices of this particular institution? So you can actually have a much more interactive process where publication isn't the end point, but actually the starting point for the generation of uh, new uh, research and information. And the, the upshot of this is it made me even more passionate about the accessibility of resources. Um, if you hashtag anything UK OER, everyone in the UK OER um, community, open educational resources, retweets you. Um, the Creative Commons licence, which I just showed you on the uh, blog post that I had there, was something which um, I got sent by one of the OER people, Pat Lockley, who, is, who used to work here. Um, and you know, he saw that I was publishing this, and he said, why don't you tag it with a Creative Commons licence? If it's clear to people that they can use it. Um, And I thought that was a very good idea. i will probably go back and do that on most of my blog pages retrospectively. And you do find out that you've sort of joined a community of people. Um, Or is it a cult? Um, No, I do think it's a community. And I got invited by, on the strength of publishing um, (coughs) online uh, without actually going through normal publishing first, And responding to a tweet about guerrilla publishing in academia that the LSE impact blog uh, put out uh, they invited me to blog um, about uh, this whole issue of whether publishers are restricting the access to uh, research publications so that's me on the the LSE impact blog and that was quite interesting and because I've blogged on someone else's blog people click through to my blog um, and uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff actually on the LSE impact blog and I'll mention it again um, later um, then there's sort of various things the academic online um, I, I'm sure there's some way I can make this PowerPoint available so that people have got all the links that lie behind these these things if they're interested in going through this this is a uh, something which uh, is a essentially an article about how you construct your persona through the use of the world Wide web and um, particularly uh, through um, Twitter and blogging um, I find it a baffling article, I don't think I fit any of these, I'm not the formal self, the static self, the public self, the networked self, the comprehensive self, I mean, it's an attempt at taxonomising how academics have tried to use um, these social uh, media um, outlets, and I think it's possibly a bit over uh, taxonomised, because certainly for me I do tweet, don't quite tweet about personal things, but I do tweet in a human way. And some of the recommendations for academic (coughs) tweeting do say, you know, if you just stick completely to here's another article and here's another article and here's a talk that I'm giving and so on, then people will follow you to a certain degree but they don't sort of really recognise that you're human. And I think being human is probably quite important. Um, There is a book, uh, The Digital Scholar, How Technology is Transforming Scholarly Practice. There's a review of it here on the LSE blog. And one of the things here, the very final thing there that it says in the last paragraph, if you're looking for a how-to guide, this is not it. Um, But it's a manifesto for a changing approach to digital scholarship and an argument as to why academia as a whole would benefit if more individuals adopted a networked, digital and open approach to scholarship. So again, it's the same kind of things which are coming out of my own experience engaging with this technology. That it's a, um, a willingness to experiment, but a willingness on the part of institutions to give their academics time and support they need in order to experiment and be tolerant of failure. And I think that's very important. I certainly, the response I've had from colleagues that I've talked to in the music faculty about this is, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to use the new technology, I don't have time to put my stuff out there. Um, I've been quite strict about incorporating it and scheduling it and timetabling it into my working week um, so that I do attempt to blog uh, regularly once a month. Um, And Twitter itself, I don't find it's difficult to find time. If you've got a, a phone that can deal with Twitter, then you can basically be doing it when you're in the queue at Sainsbury's, um, or any sort of time of the day when you're not doing something else, when you're waiting for other things to happen. Um, so that's that book, uh, which I think is quite interesting. There's people writing things like, what is a blog? This is a actually on Cambridge Journal's um, site, <coughs> and it's, a, it's actually a music academic talking about why they started blogging so you know there are tips that you can pick up from from other bloggers it's always interesting to read that and this was quite an interesting thing that came through on Twitter which is a question about who are the offline academics and I'm less interested in the answer to that headline question and I was more interested in this this woman is a recently finished um, doctoral student um, from the Netherlands and she she sort of had only recently started tweeting and blogging and yet couldn't really conceive of how she had existed before and I think there is a certain that does seem to happen to people who do this that once you get into doing it you you find it's such an easy way to network particularly if like me you're in a very small subject so you don't get the opportunity to network um, really within your own institution particularly um, and it means that you just you think where is how do people who don't do this manage, um, uh, which may be yeah. a slightly sort of zealous um, thought, but it's quite an interesting one that is that I'm not alone in in having had these thoughts. Um, other than putting my research out there, which I sort of was when I started doing it, it suddenly struck me that I could use this for undergraduate teaching purposes as well. Um, because it got to the point where sometimes I was saying to undergraduates, "Well, you know, you might want to have a look at my review of that book, or you might want to read my article." And they'd say, "Well, how do I get to it?" And I said, "Oh, just go to my blog; it's on there." And so I thought, actually, I could use specific blog posts that are targeted at students. So I've now got some some pages which are um, aimed at certain courses that I teach. I teach a course on vernacular song in the Middle Ages, and um, so I have a blog post specifically for that. Um, which sort of starts with me saying I'm teaching monophonic song and it's f- hard for students to work out where to look for the sources of monophonic song um, the sort of bibliographic skills required to be a medievalist are, are actually quite tough and particularly tough for undergraduates and people get around it in various ways some of my colleagues don't make students look at original sources at all but I think they're so pretty that you'd be crazy not to make them look at them um, But it's hard to find them, and it's particularly hard to find them online, Um, or it was hard at this point because Gallica's search function was so terrible. Um, One of my students this week has told me that Gallica's search function has now got much better. So maybe this book post is now redundant, but I I still think students like to have a nice sort of list in one place uh, from an authority that that they know personally, uh, rather than sort of trying to find stuff in Gallica and not least because Gallica was in French Um, so this really just gives you a link through to um, various medieval manuscripts um, which are quite pretty yes medieval not quite so medieval (laughs) the people who owned them in the uh, 17th and 18th century thought they could just scribble in them and cut out the initials very nice Um, Okay, and I've got another one for my MoTeC course. I won't show you the link to that because it's much the same. And students have found these really helpful and they get, I, again, I can see how much use they're getting because I can track which pages are being clicked on. Um, and they are, again, one of the, uh, some of the pages which are most looked at on the blog. <coughs> in terms of tweetings, undergraduate use, um, undergraduates aren't big Twitter users in my experience. Um, but quite a few, probably about half of my students use Twitter, and it is increasing, Um, so I sort of, I think they they do start to get on Twitter if they are friends with another student who's using Twitter and is finding it useful. Um, All my students are following me on Twitter, Uh, I didn't make it obligatory, but they did decide to do it, Um, and what that means is if I tweet interesting links to reviews, like today... In fact, one of the other students tweeted to all the students and me a link to a review of an opera that we're all going to this evening. Um, so you can tweet things like that that you come across and people get stuff sort of fairly instantly. You can also um, curate lists on Twitter, which I think is quite useful. Because when people are starting off using Twitter, they often don't know who to follow. So I've got, yeah, I've got a list of beer. Um, but I have got a list of early music people. Um, So, when my students are working on their own music, they can have a look at the list and they can decide to follow some of the people on that list, or indeed to follow the list itself. Um, I've got a private list here, so this list is not open for other people to see, which is just a list of my students, not that I'm stalking them or anything, but I can basically check up on what they're up to and what they're talking about. So, yes. Yes. Okay. So you do. <laughs> students don't always say sensible things. But um, this one here. This is um, just the feedback there on on clearly on some reading that this student is doing this this week. Uh, really annoying read. Um, I shall find out when my teacher what that is. Um, and <coughs> because this list is private, only I can see it. But it's a way. Private lists are a good way, of sort of following a particular group. So you could follow your tutor group or you could follow a particular seminar group. um, And it would enable you to sort of interact just with that group if you want to, um, rather than having to interact uh, with the whole of Twitter. Um, And the other way in which you can use it in teaching is to have a course course hashtag. So rather than using a list, if you um, hashtag, invent a hashtag that... Just pertains to your particular course and I don't know if this is actually going to work this link didn't work last time I did it oh yes so this is the hashtag musy221 which is actually being used by Freya Jarman who is a an academic at the University of Liverpool she's teaching a course on gender studies and you can see that she's been putting through various um, various articles that are in the press that uh, they want to uh, that, that are of relevance to this particular course There's one on Lady Gaga there And, uh, in fact, some of the students on the course are obviously also drawing her attention to things that they've come across, and this is sort of another way of interacting um, with your students. Okay. Then there's the use, that was the undergraduate use, the sort of uses that I've made in postgraduate um, and postdoctoral training. Um, And you can get students to sort of comment on blogs that are relevant and follow blogs that are relevant. Um, and all blog themselves. And in fact, uh, one of the students, one of the postdocs in this room, has indeed just started blogging. This is Catherine Bradley, who's at the back. Um, I was going to talk about you. I d- you said you were on the waiting list, so I didn't think you'd be here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, Catherine's blog is, is on 13th century motets. And um, we'd sort of probably it's taken me about a year and a half to persuade you to blog. Is that about right? And, you know, the email that I got in reply after you had done your first blog was sort of saying, you know, thank you for converting me from my scepticism, because you'd found it a very useful way to, to put down small, small thoughts uh, in research that are not big enough to go into any kind of formal publication, but actually will be of interest to people. It's a way of trialling material, it's a way of getting responses to your material. And again, when you're in a small subject area, you, it's much it's difficult to get uh, really good responses because there's not a crowd in your immediate institution but there is a crowd out there who indeed will comment on the stuff that you say Um, and I think increasingly will comment at the moment people are still a little bit reticent about sort of I would say some academics are sort of worried about being wrong online um, and therefore they don't want to put stuff out there until it's completely correct Um, but I think that that sort of uh, that feeling is sort of dis- disappearing uh, as more people are happy to sort of put hypothetical and speculative things up. Um, you can also set up a course blog if you're do- teaching, um, you could do this for undergraduates as well, but this is one that's been done for a taught masters course by Alex Bovey. Um, she's teaching on medieval monsters. I'd quite like to do this course. Um, and welcome to medieval monsters. Monsters of Medieval Culture, and she's got a number of blogs that she, she has blog posts that she's done herself. Does the hero Beowulf show any signs of monstrosity, for example? And it enables people who are on the course and following it to put in comments, which I don't think they've done yet. This has just started this term, so this is a relatively new venture. Um, and then the other thing which I think postgraduates uh, should be encouraged to do Um, or that you can can interact with your postgraduates to do is to live-tweet conferences and or then blog about the experience of conferences. Obviously we've got a live-tweeter somewhere in this room. Um, But I've done this myself. I I was one of four people who agreed to be a sort of semi-official live-tweeter of the first ever music and philosophy conference at King's London a couple of summers ago. And we had a hashtag that we all agreed to use and now conferences will often give you a hashtag Uh, not so often in musicology but uh, uh, it does happen Um, and you basically uh, follow the hashtag rather than following individuals which enables you to see people who you're not following who are commenting on the thing that you're interested in Um, live tweeting actually also happens um, with television programs which might sound not particularly relevant but I've actually found live tweeting proms performances on BBC has been quite an interesting way of connecting with people interested in classical music um, across the country, and uh, no doubt will sort of draw attention to the fact of there being a a music faculty at the University of Oxford and so on. Uh, that has been quite an interesting experience. Um, The BBC slightly complicated it this year by um, broadcasting things at different times on the radio and on the television. So the the two proms live tweets were out of sync uh, because one of them wasn't really live was live for the people listening, but not for the broadcast. Um, So live tweeting in conferences, I actually, um, you can aggregate the tweets under a particular hashtag, not just yours, but anyone else's, using something like Storify. So you can then blog about the experience and have a link backwards to all the tweets. I actually found that, uh, although you might think live tweeting sort of detracts from, because loads of people said to me, "Oh, you should be listening to the papers, not live tweeting. And I never worry when students are fiddling with their computers in lectures, because, you know, if if it's really that boring, then fine. Um, And if if they actually are doing something to do with uh, looking things up online and so on, or or live tweeting what you're saying, then it's actually a way of making notes and keeping notes on what they've done. It's a very public way of making notes, but nevertheless it's actually quite... It forced me to pay attention and think about pricing down what people had said into the 140 characters. Um, that you get. (coughs) So I didn't find it was a distraction. And it also meant I could follow things that were going on in parallel sessions. Uh, I was at a conference with four parallel sessions and on the hashtag I was getting the live feed from the other sessions and it did enable you to think, oh dear, I chose the wrong sessions. (laughs) It's always the case. It's like choosing the wrong queue in the supermarket. Um, And I did blog about the experience of the Music and Philosophy conference and so did one of the other live tweeters and we linked to each other's blogs and people, I got a lot of traffic back and forth from people, he was somebody who worked on late 19th, early 20th century stuff so not the crowd that would normally be looking at my blog, but it generated some traffic, and actually in the comments of his blog, he had a quite major um, academic set to, with one of the (coughs) organisers of the conference who commented on his negative portrayal of analytic philosophy, and the two of them had a uh, back and forth that lasted for about I think, six pairs of comments um, and ended up with Richard Taruskin, the most famous musicologist in the world, which may or may not be an accolade, um, weighing in and sending a private email to, to the blogger um, saying, I really like the way that you handled that guy on your blog. So that, and uh, Richard Taruskin did not know the blogger at all. So the, the, the capacity for sort of opening up channels of communication that weren't previously possible is definitely definitely a a plus. Um, This is just a slide really on research on social networking. I think, given that I want to give you a chance to ask me questions, I won't go into this really particularly. There's a lot of research on the use of social networking. Some of it's quite useful in terms of um, seeing how people have thought about research questions for the uh, effect and use of social networking. Um, LTG Oxford has got case studies Um, there's a long article about social networking and ethics done by a couple of philosophers who've sort of looked at the platonic implications um, of the ethical side of uh, social networking and then there's a short one there about Twitter in classroom use but I'll pass over for that. This is the last slide this is really just a uh, a few of the tweet guides that I found quite useful Um, probably the most useful one is the LSE Impact Blog's own guide, um, available now, a guide to using Twitter in university. Um, download the PDF and you can see that this is going to not show up in this window because it's the wrong size. But anyway, it's, it's a, a, a document that, has, that starts in a very basic way, sort of telling you how to get onto Twitter. Most of you don't need that because you're already on it. It's got a very good explanation of Twitter terminology, Um, I'm not sure whether it explains things like Follow Friday and uh, Modified Tweet and that kind of thing, but it probably does, can't remember, Um, but it's actually a really good uh, introductory guide uh, for how an academic might want to use Twitter. Um, The Pegasus Data Project Guide to Using Social Media um, is less specifically for academics. Um, it, It really is more for people who are running the Twitter feed for companies. Um, for example. So it says things like, don't blog more than once an hour, don't tweet more than once an hour, um, which, you know, I, of course I tweet more than once an hour. In w- some hours, the hours when I'm standing in the queue at Sainsbury's, I might tweet, you know, I might retweet a couple of things and add a few extra bits and bobs, and then I won't be on Twitter again for another sort of seven or eight hours. Um, clearly the Pegasus Data Project is much more uh, aimed at people who are managing the Twitter feed for a project they're on or a company or something and they're on Twitter all the time. Um, Some people think I'm on Twitter all the time, but uh, I (coughs) don't. Um, This document here, (coughs) 100 Ways to Use Twitter in Education, um, is very good um, and a much sort of, um, let's see, it's arranged by degree of difficulty, so it starts with the basics, organise your Twitter, flesh out your bio, educate yourself on the basics, link to your blog, blog, Avoid rookie mistakes and so on. That sort of thing is probably very familiar, but by the time you get down to sort of these ones, Twello, Twitter Grader, I've used Twitter Grader. Check out how well you're doing with Twitter. Grade yourself. Uh, it basically looks up what ratio of followers to followed you have and how many people are retweeting you and that kind of thing, so you can get some kind of idea of how successful your use of twi- Twitter is. And this really gives a quite a good uh, synopsis of the various different applications that interface with Twitter um, to do specific things. Um, so you know, by the time you get down to the, the last couple of um, uh, dozens of these uh, hundred <coughs> things to do with Twitter, um, you know, I'd actually probably be less of an amateur at li- using Twitter if I did all of the things on this list. <laughs> um, then there, there's a couple of blog posts that I found really useful by someone who I'm following on Twitter, a guy called Peter Ead, who is a former lawyer. And uh, he's sort of a very, very keen blogger. He's not an academic. He's not blogging for a company. He's just blogging and tweeting and using Twitter really as a micro blog uh, to point to his own blog. And he gives a quite interesting... His blog is called The Blog That Peter Wrote. Um, a quite interesting sort of... I tend to, when people say, why do you do Twitter, what is it? And it's very hard to explain what it is if you've ever done it. I often send people a link to this, or indeed to his guides, because he's done a sort of guide of how to use Twitter as well, which is much more chatty and much funnier than the LSE Impact <laughs> Guide and any of the other ones there. So there's sort of various things. And, of course, there's the IT Services own course on um, using uh, Twitter as well. Um, I think that is nearly all I want to say. Um, the one thing that struck me, looking at my Twitter feed earlier, when I was waiting for this room to become free, so I could come in and, and set up for this, I was looking at the, my Twitter feed. I'm following nearly 1,000 people, um, and a lot of people say, well, how can you manage following that many people? Because most of my students are following a very small number of people, which means that if I tweet something not aimed at them, they're likely to see it for about two or three hours after I've tweeted it, because their feed is so small. Um, whereas for me, you know, if I don't look at something the moment someone tweets it, I'm never going to see it because you don't ever look back very far in your Twitter feed. Although I do use lists to aggregate things um, on specific strands that I, that I want to know about. But looking at my Twitter feed, so many of the links that I've shown today, in fact all of them I think have come through Twitter, and a lot of interesting information comes to me now through Twitter. Um, and I find that if I'm talking to people who are on Twitter they often know a lot of the same information, which is quite interesting, and people who are not on Twitter have missed out on that information. Um, And that to me seems a sort of sign of the fact that even though it seems sort of quite random, uh, it does have a a level of um, non-randomness to it. And the thing it reminded me of most of all is browsing books in a a library, browsing shelves in a library. Because a lot of people say, "Oh, it's terrible now that all the books are online, all the journal articles are online, because you remember that serendipity, you read the journal article that you had to read for your tutorial, you turned the Mm -hmm. page, and the next one was much more interesting, and so you read that one. And now that never happens, because you just go straight to the one you want. Well, on Twitter, you don't go to the the thing you want, you're following people who are real-life people, or institutions that are run by real-life people, and they chuck stuff out there all the time. Some of it is sort of right on what you want. And other other things are sort of surprising and interesting. And so, you know, that's what I'm now going to say to people who lament the decline of the browsing of the library shelves is get on Twitter. OK, thank you very much.